Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that if it takes you a while to recover from a few lost hours of sleep, be glad you're not an orb weaver spider. They have the shortest natural circadian rhythm discovered in any animal so far. Most of us have body clocks that run closer to a 24-hour day-night cycle, and light helps you to reset that. But the orb weaver's body clock runs on an 18-hour cycle, which means that these little spiders have to shift their cycle of activity and inactivity by about five hours every day just to keep up with the normal solar cycle. So be glad you're not a spider. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD plus. Check out Qualia NAD plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Today's podcast is the second half of the interview with Sachin Panda. In the first half, we talk a lot about uh, circadian lighting and things like that. And today, we're going to talk more about meal timing. And it turns out that both food and light have a profound effect on what your body does, how its timing signal works. So you'll learn a lot of really crazy stuff actually about the fact that when you eat changes everything. And I was just blown away by this interview. I think you will be too. When it comes to that, um, as you pointed out, just taking care of light exposure or less light during nighttime or more light during the daytime is really key to keeping our brain circadian clock uh, functional. Similarly, almost uh, Nine years ago, we made another big discovery. That is, um, we know that almost every organ in our body has a circadian clock. So that means just like our brain has a clock that uh, makes us to sleep, uh, similarly our liver, gut, uh, every organ, even our skin, even our hair follicle, everything has clocks. And what we found is it's not the light that resets the rest of the clock outside the brain, but it's when we eat. So if yes. we take mice, which essentially are naturally prone to eating only at nighttime, and if we give them food only during daytime, we can reset all of their clocks to the daytime cycle. So that made us really curious about what happens when people eat randomly throughout day and night. Because just like the first ray of light in the morning tells our brain that the day has just started and get ready for the day. Similarly, the first bite of the uh, day tells our gut, our liver, and our muscle, and our fat cells that the day has just started and start doing your job. By the same time, if we continue eating late into the night, then all these clocks get confused, and they don't know whether it's day or night. So just like I said, the incompatible processes will start working together. So that means it's almost like texting and driving from Boston to New York or Seattle to Vancouver. Um, You can go a few miles, but then after a few miles, your chance of getting into an accident goes up. So that's what happens, we think. So to test this very simple idea that forget about calories, forget about what kind of food you eat. If we control timing, how much of benefit you can get? So we went back to a mouse room and we repeated an experiment that has been done 10,000 times in many different academic labs, drug industry, and uh, many places. There are 10,000 papers on it. And that's uh, if you give mouse a high-fat diet, they're ready to eat anytime. When I say high-fat, it's around 60%, 40 to 60% of calories come from fat, and then 20% calories come from pure sucrose then they become morbidly obese very quickly. Within nine to 10 weeks, they're overweight, and by 15, 16 weeks, they're obese 
morbidly obese. So we brought two groups of mice. One group got uh, free access to high-fat, high-sucrose diet. Um, they can eat whenever they want. And then the other group got the same number of calories from the same high-fat, high-sucrose diet, but they were they had to eat all their food within nine hours, eight to nine hours at night time when their circadian clock tells them to eat. Surprisingly, after 16 weeks or 18 weeks, um, these mice that are eating the same bad food within eight to nine hours were completely healthy. They were not overweight. They were not obese. They had completely normal liver function, normal cholesterol, normal glucose control. They actually stayed on treadmill twice longer than mice that ate normal standard diet. On the same food? The same food. And in fact, if we take the mice that are already obese and overweight, if we give them the same food, but they have to eat only within eight hours, we can reverse their disease. And that was so earth-shattering that I could not believe it. I had to ask three different people in my lab to independently run this. And even I personally went and repeated this to make sure that this is true, because this is, this is, this is against anything that we know. So uh, we have repeated that experiment, and now a lot of different labs from all over the world have repeated, and they find the same finding, that the timing has a huge impact. It doesn't mean that we should continue to eat bad food. It just shows that uh, the timing has a huge impact. What did, what did this do for your mom? <laughs> yeah, so for my mom, you said? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so I'll go to that story. So <laughs> what <laughs> happened was um, we saw this result in mouse, and we kept applying for federal grant money to learn this more and to figure out why, what is the mechanism, et cetera. And um, our reviewers and many people in nutrition field, they thought, uh, they said that, well, we humans, we all eat three meals a day within 12 hours, so your research has no significance. And that was really very depressing. But at the same time, we asked, well, has anybody figured out when people actually eat? Um, because uh, we always think that we eat within 12 hours. Uh, but when I looked at myself at that time, uh, I realized that I start my day very early, so I have a cup of coffee with cream and sugar around 7, 7.15. Uh, and I used to get home late, and then at late at night, if I was working on an assignment or something or a paper, then I would stay awake and sip coffee and some cookies late into the night. So I realized my eating window was around 16 hours, and I was overweight. Like a mouse. Yeah, like a mouse. So then we developed a very simple lab. Now it is called My Circadian Clock. And we asked people to just take a picture of their food, and because with that simple picture, we got what, when, and how much, and even where they ate that food. That, they just had to take a picture, and we did the rest. And in the first study, we had 156 healthy adults. All of them claimed that they eat all their food within 12 hours. And when we asked them to log everything honestly for three weeks, what we found is nearly 50% of those healthy cohorts, uh, healthy adults, were eating their food over 15 hours or longer. And uh, when we showed them their data, then they were surprised. They said, it's almost like you feel like you're healthy and handsome until you stand in front of a mirror. And then you realize, oh, well, I got to take care of my hair or I haven't shaved for a couple of days and <laughs> all that stuff. So, so it's almost like that. Logging your own data, honestly, for two to three weeks and looking at it um, was a huge surprise for half of these people. Then the second thing that we did was, well, these people are healthy, but not necessarily uh, within healthy weight. Some of them were overweight and obese. So we asked some of them to see whether they can eat whatever they want, how much ever they want within a self-selected 10 hours window. Because in mice, by that time, we had done many experiments, and we figured out that somewhere between 8 to 12 hours is a good point and beyond 12 hours, eating everything beyond 12 hours is not that healthy. And we thought if we ask people to eat everything within 10 hours, they might occasionally eat outside and it will come around 10 and a half to 11. And surprisingly, uh, everyone we had asked to participate in this study, they actually loved this study and they stayed within 10 to 10 and a half hours for 16 weeks. Then we completely cut them off, no contact with them for a year and we brought them back again. 
And without any further input, they actually, we, we are surprised that they stayed with that new habit. And when we asked them, why did you stay with this new habit? They said, well, you know, this is uh, very easy to do because there is no food deprivation. <laughs> Whatever we wanted to eat <laughs> means a lot of, lot of us actually don't have access to healthy food. A lot of us go to work and then there is only one or two restaurant or cafeteria or a vending machine. And whatever education we have about health and nutrition, we don't have access to really. We cannot change that diet. So they are happy that they stayed with that. And second thing was a lot of them, they almost everybody said they slept better. And everybody said they felt more energetic and they had less hunger. This is really interesting because people would think that if you eat within 10 hours, then you'll feel hungry. But conversely, they were more satisfied with their food. And of course, when we went back and looked at their, all the, they were also collecting pictures of their food, at least for a few weeks. Of course, when we kind of guesstimated all the calories and uh, found that they unknowingly reduced their caloric intake by 10 to 20%. So we didn't have to tell them, count calories and reduce calories. But what happened was when they stopped, when they ate everything within 10 hours, they cut out all the late night snacks and alcohol. And uh, similarly, very early morning, some of them actually started their coffee a little bit later. So they cut out the early cookies that they used to eat with their coffee. Uh, so it was kind of interesting. <laughs> what about like black coffee or tea without sugar? Uh, yeah. What, so <laughs> does, that, does that count? Well, so that's uh, very interesting. So we get this question, of course, uh, from everybody. Of course, we cannot do that experiment in mouse. Mice don't <laughs> like coffee. <laughs> and in humans, uh, we are still waiting to get some funding to do that. But what I'll tell you is just entirely based on my uh, guess and what I know, some, some educated guess. When it comes to, say, insulin response, of course, since we are not putting any sugar into coffee and there is no cream, we may not get a spike in insulin or glucose. In early morning, when you're trying to wake up and get to work and feel that extra boost of energy, that black coffee may be okay. But at the same time, uh, when I stand in line in Starbucks or Pete's Coffee, uh, and I see almost 95% of people will get that coffee, come back to the <laughs> milk and cream station, yep. and then pour a lot of sugar and cream and drink their coffee. So that's why we tell people, no, drinking coffee outside that window is not allowed because we know 95% of people do this. But if some people can control and can have only black coffee, then um, at least this should be okay in the first half of the day. But in the second half of the day, as you know, a lot of us take a long time to break down that caffeine. And if people want to sleep a little bit early or have a better sleep, then they should stop coffee, uh, say, after lunch. So that's what we say. <laughs> yeah, my, my standard recommendation there is don't drink caffeine after 2 p.m. if you want to sleep. It, this is yeah, not, a, yeah, yeah. not a good plan. Yeah. Uh, I, I find most people tolerate decaf after that because the amounts are very low. So I, yeah. I'll, do, I'll do decaf in the evening even, but I drink it black. Uh, yeah. I'm going to do it in the evening, right? No, the nice thing is when you drink black, then you can actually get away with less coffee uh, because it's so strong <laughs> that you, you <laughs> can actually... Like <laughs> no, no, I mean, I mean, you can still drink it, but the thing is you are not taking that extra calories from sugar uh, right. and cream. Yeah. Now, one of the things that, that I became aware of is that insulin and blood sugar are part of the signal for circadian biology. Uh, and... We also know that insulin, high insulin over time and high blood sugar levels cause other types of aging and degradation in the body. So um, part of the reason that I, I came up with the original Bulletproof coffee, which has just grass-fed butter and brain octane that raises ketones in it, um, was that it has zero insulin effect. And third parties have like valid, they, they studied like every common breakfast out there. And the one with the lowest possible like zero insulin response was, well, if you just have that in the morning, you can get some energy in the system because you get those ketones going, but you don't have the the blood sugar stuff. Have you seen yeah. any research or, or, or any preliminary stuff around blood sugar versus blood ketones in circadian setting? Well, the blood sugar is very interesting. So this is where the 
when people ask us, well, if they want to do time-restricted eating, we call it time-restricted eating because timing is restricted, calorie is not restricted. Right. Uh, when they should do it, early morning or the first half of the day, suppose they start around 8 or 9, go till 5 or 6, or they can start around noon and go late into the night. And this is where circadian rhythm comes in. Yeah. And this is where... We still have to learn a lot, but this is a very exciting, very interesting area that will see a lot of progress. That is this. If you take a healthy uh, human and give a bolus of sugar in the morning and measure blood glucose and insulin, this healthy person will be diagnosed healthy. The blood sugar will rise uh, for a few minutes and will come back to normal within 90 minutes. Now you take the same healthy person and give them the same bolus of sugar in the middle of the evening, say 8 or 9 p.m., then the blood sugar might rise uh, pretty high to almost pre-diabetes level, and then it will take very long time to come back. That's a very clear circadian effect. And in fact, right. in 70s, doctors had a funny term for this. They used to call it the evening diabetes. So that means... In the morning, the same person might be diagnosed healthy. And the evening, if you give a diabetes test, postprandial glucose test, then the person might be diagnosed diabetes. And what we are learning now is, just I say, every organ has a circadian clock. Our pancreas also has a circadian clock. And the pancreas clock essentially tells the pancreas, the kitchen is closed after 6 o'clock. You don't have to <laughs> produce too much insulin. So the pancreas doesn't release enough insulin after an evening meal. So insulin kind of comes in uh, small drift, not in a big flow or rush as it happens in the morning. So as the insulin comes in small drift for a very long period of time, as we know, insulin is anabolic, so it will help some of the sugar to be stored as fat. A late-night meal might tell your body to store a big portion of it as fat instead of using it as glycogen or burning that off right away. Then another interesting thing where light and insulin, they get together is a few years ago, uh, large human genetic studies to look at diabetes uh, found that melatonin receptor, this is a protein that binds to melatonin and signals the cell that, hey, melatonin is there, do your stuff. So that melatonin receptor mutation appeared again and again in human subjects who were either diabetic or, or overweight. And that was confusing for a lot of people. So that's why a lot of research went into it. And now we know that the melatonin receptor is present in pancreas. And when it engages with melatonin, then it tells the pancreas not to secrete as much insulin. So that might be the reason why at nighttime, as we naturally build up our melatonin level, we also tell our pancreas that this is nighttime, the kitchen is closed, and you can go back to sleep. So it's almost like a sleep signal to the pancreas. And at that time, if we eat, then we end up storing more in fat and also keeping our blood sugar high for a long period of time. Quite interesting. What about <laughs> ketones? Like when, when people go in ketosis, and I, I always have background ketones because of the way I eat, but I'm not, yeah, yeah. I don't do a zero-carb diet most of the time. I, I cycle in and out. Um, it, we're, not tying the, we're not tying the pancreas in at all. And uh, there's many different pathways that are affected by ketones, but I... I'm unaware of, of circadian research tied into ketosis, but given that so many people are now doing things like bulletproof coffee or keto diets and things like that, do you think that there's a role in setting circadian rhythm by manipulating fat versus sugar versus protein? Well, uh, what we have done is in, in it started with mice. Uh, so as I told you, in mice, when we put these mice on eight hours or 10 hours eating window, and they go through somewhere between 14 to 16 hours of fasting, then those mice run on treadmill twice longer than mice that have a limited access to even healthy diet. So that triggered us to think what is going on here. And that advantage goes away if the mice eat for 12 hours. 
everything else remains the same. They have the same body weight. They have the same blood sugar and everything same. Only when they go to eight hours or 10 hours, then we see this advantage in endurance. And what we find is when mice eat for eight to 10 hours, then they, towards the end of the fasting period, they naturally build up their ketone bodies. So that means the ketone-making enzymes, uh, the pathway that breaks down fat into ketone, those are activated by circadian rhythm, but it also requires the combination of having a good rhythm and that long fasting of more than 12 hours. And what is interesting is through our circadian, my circadian clock app, a lot of athletes and a lot of um, health enthusiasts have been following time-restricted eating and they experiment themselves between 12 hours, 10 hours, and 8 hours. And a lot of them, they report us back that when they do 8 hours eating or 10 hours eating, then they can do that marathon uh, less tired. Or some people who are just going for spinning classes, uh, after an hour, they're less tired. So that is uh, kind of telling us that the circadian, there is a circadian program to make ketone bodies towards the end of our fasting cycle. And that ketone body has a huge impact, not only on cardiovascular health, but also on brain health. And in fact, in follow-up to that basic science research that we did in mice, there was another study that came out from Europe that showed that, yes, when rats or mice are given access to food only for six hours, then they make ketone bodies. And that ketone body goes to the brain and acts on certain part, only on certain part of the brain, clock neurons, to start what is called exploratory activity. So that means when we're hungry, actually, if you think about it, if you dial back 100 years or 200 years back, if it was a winter night or even a long night, uh, the person, the our ancestors, they had their meal maybe around just before evening, and then they fasted for the entire night, 12 hours. And then after twilight zone, maybe at 10 o'clock in the morning, they would go hunt. And they have gone through almost 14 to 16 hours of fasting. But what is interesting is they have to, their brain has to act much better in that hungry state. And the muscles have to act much quicker in that hungry state to go and catch that um, deer or some other animals. So that's why we are programmed to go through this daily cycle of ketosis so that in the last two to four hours of our fasting period, we build up the ketone body to make our brain more active, our muscles more active, our heart more active so that we can go and hunt. And that exactly we see even in these mice and rats. So they become more active towards the end of the fasting cycle and they go look for food. Even an hour or two before they're supposed to get food, they will get up and then start looking around. So I think this is a very primordial signature, primordial program in our circadian system that we naturally make. Yeah. You think the ketones are actually driving the exploratory behavior? Yeah, so that's what um, this paper actually showed from Europe, that if they gave ketone, and they actually did a very interesting experiment, they put this ketone in a programmable mini pump and implanted those mini pumps inside (laughs) these rodents so that they can control what time (laughs) they can release ketones. And that mimicked the natural uh, exploratory activity that you are <laughs> you're you're blowing my mind because i i think i understand all of the mechanisms of bulletproof coffee because i like i've noticed big differences when i do this but when people sleep for 8 hours they're getting a fasting window and they should have mild ketones and we know that even a tablespoon of coconut oil raises ketones as much as 8 hours of fasting but the oil that's in bulletproof coffee brain octane raises ketones four times more so I didn't realize the ketones drove exploratory behavior because what I'm doing is I'm fasting for probably more like 10, 12 hours or something by the time I wake up. So I'm already making some ketones. Then I do a bulletproof coffee, which raises my ketones substantially more. And then I feel like amazing. But what you're, what you're helping me understand here is that it may actually be driving my exploratory behavior because I got the fasting ketones and then I dumped some more without a yeah. ketone pump. Yeah. But I dumped those in <laughs> and then I just... I but I'm not food seeking because I also changed ghrelin and CCK levels and things like that. Yeah. So 
you you completely just blew my mind there because the exploratory behavior is something I didn't describe with that word, but I just feel like I I want to go do stuff, right? And and it may be driven by ketones plus circadian biology, and I didn't get that circadian link until you just told me this. So thank you. <laughs> uh, okay, well that totally blew my mind. I, I how did I not know that? Okay, well, well that that's beautiful. Yeah. Well, I realized I asked you about your mom. But we yeah. never, and you started the oh, story, but you yes. never you never told me about the rest of of what happened when you put your mom on your lab results. I love this story. Will you, will you share it with listeners? Yeah. So what happened was um, I was telling my mom uh, that she should also try to do this what I call time restricted eating. My mom is vegetarian and she lives in India. Uh, she does the usual religious fasting. Well, you know, when people do religious fasting or any kind of traditional fasting, they're actually drinking uh, fruit juice and few other nuts and other stuff, and they have no restriction on timing. And a lot of people in India, even though Indian, many Indians are vegetarian, they have a very circadian disruptive eating pattern. And in fact, we published a paper last year. We monitored around 100 random people in New Delhi area through a collaborator using very similar approach. And we found that uh, nearly 50% of adults eat for 16 hours or or longer in India. And the reason is people wake up early. In India, people tend to wake up very early. And then they have their first cup of tea, uh, which is usually with milk and sugar, and some biscuit, which are essentially highly processed uh, gluten and rice uh, powder or something very bad in terms of glycemic control. Then they will have breakfast around 8 or 9. So if you ask them, when do you eat your breakfast, they will never admit that they had tea or coffee early in the morning. (laughs) They think tea or coffee doesn't count. And then the day goes on, they eat. uh, Then at late at night, some people also have a glass of milk because it's good to have milk. And people usually (laughs) have a glass of milk before going to bed. So similarly, my mom would have, once in a while, she would have a cup of tea, actually, late at night with cream and sugar. And even on her fasting day, she would have sometimes this late night um, tea. And then she's uh, now 60 plus, and she slowly became pre-diabetic. Her blood sugar was rising, and she was really, really concerned because she knows, she knew that a lot of her siblings and also introns in her family and she knows how terrible diabetes is. It's not just popping a pill. There are a lot of different things that come with diabetes. So she tried controlling her diet, different types of food, changed her food habit, but nothing was actually helping. And I was telling her that now you got to stop this late night cream and uh, sugar tea. And then she thought that that's not the cause of the problem. So we went back and forth and she didn't listen to me. Then finally, I brought her to the U.S. for six months. And at home, I just stopped all kinds of food after six. I said, no, kitchen closes at six. <laughs> we should all stop. No, no tea, no coffee, nothing. And initially, she felt really bad that, uh, you know, this is her son who brought her to the U.S. I means she comes almost every year. Uh, but I was food depriving my mom after 6 p.m. <laughs> It sounds really bad. Like, you're not feeding your mom after 6 p.m.? <laughs> give, give me a break. Uh, but then after a month or two, uh, she started feeling great. And in fact, she, as usual, she has some joint pain, and that went down because we know time-restricted eating reduces uh, systemic inflammation. So when the joint pain went down, she also started walking a little bit more. She used to go to the uh, there is a nice uh, park near our house. She used to go there and take two rounds. She started taking three rounds. She started timing herself, and then she improved her pace. And she was really feeling great. And then when she went back to India and checked her blood sugar level, her doctor was surprised because she went from fasting blood sugar of 115 down to 81, 82. Uh, she was really excited. Like, she lost a little bit of weight, but she was very excited. She felt light because of this um, time-restricted eating, she had lost some uh, fat mass. And now she has become a complete convert. In fact, she's the one who is telling her siblings and her friends that they should all adopt this uh, eating pattern. So it's kind of gratifying to see because, you know, a lot of us, we do research and we do very high-impact uh, basic science research, but very few of us 
can actually take the finding that we find in mice or rats to real life and to change human lives. And I'm really uh, thankful uh, for this opportunity that I have at the Salk Institute to do this kind of research because as I told you, a lot of this research was not funded originally by federal funding. So a lot of it was actually done by philanthropy, by honest taxpayers and philanthropic people who contributed to this research. So this is extremely gratifying to see this impact. But at the same time, I must say, we really do not know a lot about what time-restricted eating can or cannot do. We don't know the limitations. Uh, we should not say that this is a cure-all magic pill. We cannot say that this is a silver bullet unless we clearly understand what are the limitations and what all it can impact, how long it takes to make that improvement. For example, we know people who start time-restricted eating and can successfully adopt a 10-hour eating window, which is the healthiest one so far, kind of the right balance between going too extreme to six hours of eight hours of eating or too liberal, 12 to 14 hours. When they do 10 hours, within two to three weeks, they will see improvement in sleep, but they may not see improvement in uh, their triglyceride or cholesterol level that quickly. That will take a few more weeks. So similarly, they might see improvement in inflammation maybe after four to five months. And we don't know how long it takes for what type of people. And then we know that there are a lot of recent studies that are coming out showing women who traditionally or, or habitually eat only within 11 hours or they have 13 hours overnight fasting have low risk for breast cancer. And we also know that women who are once had breast cancer and if they if they eat for 30, sorry 11 hours fast for 13 hours they also have very low risk for recurrence uh, for getting another episode of cancer we are also beginning to see that eating time has an interaction with uh, drug so that means people who are going through cancer chemotherapy or radiation therapy then there might be interaction between how many hours they eat or sleep and what time they're taking the radiation therapy or the cancer therapy, or the chemotherapy. So there are a lot of many types of questions at many different levels. At one extreme is very simple thing, like how many days does it take to see improvement in sleep? Or if you don't see improvement in sleep, why? Are there other things, confounding factors? At the other extreme, we have cases like cancer, or multiple sclerosis, or many, or IBD, or IBS. Uh, can we actually reduce the severity of these diseases? How long it takes? Will it be 10 hours of eating? And another thing is, how does eating uh, the type of food or the calorie content interacts with fasting window? Just like you said, if somebody who is eating ketogenic diet, they're already driving that ketone process. And on top of that, if they combine time-restricted eating, will it boost so that they can get away with half the ketone uh, from diet and half the ketone from internal uh, circadian mechanism. So there are a lot of different questions. And if I look at each individual question and ask, can I address those in my lifetime or in the lifetime of my trainees in my lab? The answer is no, we cannot. So that's why we have to inspire lot of scientists all over the world to do control studies, but at the same time, I'm hoping that through my circadian clock app, a lot of people will volunteer from all over the world to adopt um, time-restricted eating, and since we'll get their other data, for example, what type of calories they're eating, or what type of uh, lifestyle they have, uh, at what age, socioeconomic, demographic background, then with artificial intelligence and big data mining resources, we can get to these answers much quicker and in a cost-effective manner, and we can build those knowledge base very quickly. So that's why I'm very excited about this app, My Circadian Clock, and it's wide adoption now throughout the world.
I'm I'm pretty sure that you're going to see a huge influx of people saying I had bulletproof coffee for breakfast because there are a lot of listeners on the show who are the type of people yeah. like yeah I'll, I'll give that a try and they're all already familiar because I keep talking yeah. about it you know eating fasting windows and eating windows and things like that so I'm I'm hoping for people listening you should check out the app because yeah it's uh it, it's really cool and there is definitely meat uh, meat on the bone so to speak for this kind of research yeah. and and Sachin I want to. Uh, point something out. Yeah, you're a you're a very unusual type of of academic lab <laughs> researcher because you're willing yeah. to do something that's risky, and what you're willing to do is say, "Here's what we found in the lab. Let's try it." And and to compare that, I I had a chance uh, to ask Craig Venter a few questions. This is uh, for listeners. Yeah, uh, this is the guy, the first human to uh, sequence his own genome. And, you know, one of the, the big names in, in uh, sequencing human genomes and looking at genetic effects of everything. And I said, so you have 20 years of data based on all this data. Now, can you make any directional recommendations for us? Or should we wait until there's more data while we have pizza and beer? And, and he looks at me, he goes, let's talk about it over pizza and beer. <laughs> I'm like, no. <laughs> so th- the difference here is you're saying, well, here's what I see in the lab. Why don't we try it in humans? Because it's probably not harmful. And let's see what happens, even if we don't know everything. And the willingness to take action from a research perspective, while acknowledging that there's a lot more to learn, is highly unusual. Why are you like that? Like, like how did you get to be a risk-taking academic in that way? Because it's very unusual and it's very special. And it's, it's the type of thing that changes the world. So what made you this way? <laughs> So there are two things. One is I went to another great uh, research institute, Scripps Research Institute, uh, which is right next door, actually. And during my PhD, I clearly remember I had a professor, Jeff Kelly, who is also a uh, kind of semi-professional race car driver. (laughs) And (laughs) once he gave me this example, he said, well, when you're a race car driver and you are in the circuit, you're driving you have to be 95% sure that you can overtake the next car before you hit the gas to its metal. And the story is very different in science. If you want to be a really successful scientist who will leave a lasting legacy, you have to be 5% sure that you have a chance before you give it a try. (laughs) And that kind of stayed with me. And then the second thing is when I came to Salk Institute, when I look at, say, Jonas Salk, um, you know, this guy who uh, developed the inventor, the polio vaccine, and he took a huge chance. And if you look at polio, we haven't cured polio, but we have prevented it to the extent that we have almost eradicated it. So prevention has a huge, huge power that we haven't leveraged it. So that's right. why when I started in circadian rhythm and I realized that Every gene cycles and this eating pattern and all this stuff have huge impact. One limitation that I find is I can do all this research in mice, but mice don't tell me how they're feeling. Mice can tell me only the things that I measure. They cannot, uh, they cannot interact with me. So the way I do, uh, for example, when we started the first um, study with my circadian clock app, we were hoping that people may lose weight, but the chance was pretty slim. They lost weight, we were very excited. But when we asked, why did you stick to it for one year? And when they said that they slept better, that was like, that's where the spark went on. And I'm like, really? We had no idea that the gut actually talks to the brain <laughs> like in five years ago. <laughs> I never, It never crossed my mind. So mouse would have never told me that <laughs> the mouse actually slept well, but humans told me that, Okay, so they slept well. Then we went back to the lab, and then we put electrodes on mouse brain, and we asked, are the mice sleeping better? And we saw, yes, mice are sleeping better. And then we went back to fruit flies, and we asked, are they sleeping better? And then what is interesting is what we found, yes, they sleep better, but it's not that they, their sleep circuit is improved. What happened was the arousal circuit was modified. So the simple idea is this. If you take a newborn baby who is sleeping with her mom, then the baby kicks uh, 10 times in the night, the mom wakes up every time. The baby doesn't wake up because the baby has a very high arousal threshold. 
So when we say sleeping like a baby, if we have high arousal threshold, then little things will not disturb us, will not wake up. And what we found is uh, this time-restricted eating raises that arousal threshold. And that came only by doing the human study because we had no idea that when people do time-restricted eating, their sleep improves. So it's kind of very fun to go back and forth between humans and testing that idea in animals or in cells and then figuring out the mechanism and then getting another insight or another hypothesis and going back to humans. So for example, we saw reduction in inflammation in mice. And then when we saw people are saying the joint pain decreased, now we can connect these two. And then we can go back and say, why inflammation is reducing? And now we are looking at, say, gut microbiome in animals, and then we figured out, aha, so that's the key to reducing inflammation. So it's kind of interesting to do the experiments this way, and being in Salk Institute, having awesome people around me who are kind of taking risks every day is also very gratifying. Because, you know, we got only one life. And if I look at my productive research career, it's only 30 years, and I've already wasted 12 years. <laughs> so <laughs> I have another 15 to 16 years to do some something. And I always feel also um, kind of uh, grateful because what I do in the lab is not my own money. It's not some uh, corporation's money. It's honest taxpayers and um, philanthropists who are putting their money they're investing to understand human being, to understand our health, so they're investing in our future. And I'm kind of at the interface. So I get to do all the cool stuff. I, I, I'm like in a, a kid in a candy store, but at the same time, I got to make sure that I pay back to this, all these honest people who have put their faith in my lab. So that's another thing that really uh, drives me every day. I have two more questions for you. Okay. The first one is, let's do a quick rundown of stuff listeners can do today based yeah. on your research, both from lighting and food, so that they can sleep better and have better circadian biology. Just kind of a quick list of bullet points. Okay. So one thing is if they have um, smartphone, computer screen, all kinds of screens, most computers and smartphones have the night shift feature, so they should activate that. So that, okay. say, starting at 8 p.m. onwards, the screen should turn uh, less bright and change color. The second, if you have some bright lights in your home, <laughs> think of replacing them, uh, putting a dimmer switch, and also have a pair of melanopsin or blue light filtering, true dark or any kind of glasses. And in fact, my new ways of thinking is just use your sunglasses at nighttime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that old song, I wear my sunglasses at night, they were right. <laughs> okay, and then try to be outside for at least 10 to 15 minutes every day because yeah. I wear a light tracking watch on myself and I was surprised that the only time I get exposed to bright blue light or daylight during daytime is when I'm walking from my car to my lab <laughs> or in the... Wait. Wait, a, a light tracking watch? What watch is this? So this is a research-grade uh, watch from Philips that's only made for, it's a FDA-approved watch for sleep monitoring and light monitoring. Okay. Right, I'm talking to you afterwards about how to get one. I'm going to get one of those. <laughs> so I was surprised that um, I get only, I, I was getting only 30 minutes outdoor. Um, so I, and now I'm making effort that I get daylight. Then purchase a pair of sleeping mask, eye mask, and earplugs <laughs> that will help you sleep better. It's a small investment into big thing. And then try to monitor what time you're eating. And then the best way, as I said, is you can download any app. But when you download My Circadian Clock, you have to go to the website and do informed consent because it's a research study. Then you're not only tracking yourself and improving, you're also contributing to research. But even if you're not doing that, just pay attention to what time you start eating, and then count for 10 hours or 12 hours. Uh, if you can do 10 hours, that's great, and stop there, because 
10 hours of eating or 11 hours of eating is what we are designed for. Just like our brain needs 7 to 8 hours of sleep, almost every organ in our body needs 12 to 14 hours of downtime to repair, reset, and rejuvenate. What about blackout curtains? Uh, like yes. making sure your sleeping environment is dark. That's something that really changed things for me. Is that part of your recommendations too? Yes, that's a huge okay. uh, thing. Um, I mean, even if you're wearing an eye mask, it's not comfortable or it will fall off. So that's why a blackout curtain is another big thing. Those are not very expensive. You can go to Home Depot and Lowe's and you can always find a blackout curtain that fits your budget. Then carry some um, electrical tape with you when you're traveling because you've got I to... totally do. <laughs> we actually make little dots now. The True Dark, the, the glasses yeah. company, makes little dots that fit over uh, LEDs in your house because those little blue LEDs. It's that's enough blue light to matter, right? Oh yeah, that's that's a huge amount of blue light. Means I cannot sleep in a hotel room with all those uh, blue light indicators. So, so that's another thing that I do. And when you are traveling. Uh, particularly transcontinental flight or long distance travel, I try to get at least 12 to 16 hours of fasting during flight yeah. or depending on where you will be, what will be your next meal because sometimes you might be in a business trip where within two hours of landing there is a big dinner or lunch you have to go to. So figure out, calculate back 12 to 16 hours and then fast during that entire time. It's not worth that airline food, even if you're in business class. <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> I, I, amen. I, I'm the same way. I, I fast on flights, and with that and a hat and the True Dark glasses and noise-canceling headphones, I don't oh, get yeah. jet lag. When, exactly. When I, so <laughs> even, yeah, I can fly to Dubai, like from California, and not have jet lag, and it's totally changed my life. But I've got to control yeah. the light spectrum and the food. One or the other isn't enough. No, you got to do both. <laughs> so these are small investments uh, that go a huge way into your health. Oh, that's so cool. All right, that's a great list uh, for people listening. This will be in the show notes. We'll put them in the blog post. Yeah. Uh, and these these are very much in alignment with some of the things you've read in the Bulletproof Diet or Headstrong. Uh, yeah. But this is from a guy who who's done the core research at the Salk Institute. So you know th- this is highly credible information. And it's so credible that he could test it on his own mother. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And my, my final question for you, Sachin. Yeah. yeah. If someone came to you tomorrow yeah. at, as someone who's you know, changing the world with your research and, and said, look, I want to perform better as a human being, what are the three most important pieces of advice you have for me? And, and this doesn't have to be from your, your body of research, but you something made you get to where you are and do the things you do is something makes you wake up every morning. So three most important things that you'd offer to someone who wants to have your level of performance. What would you offer them? One is uh, sleep. Okay. <laughs> you got to sleep until you are satisfied. I mean, some people need eight hours. Some people can do well with five hours. Feel rested. Uh, second is um, have some time to yourself. What I mean that what I mean by that is set aside one or two hours when you can think creatively. You can tackle some new problem. You can think about some new dreams or how you can get to those things. And to support these two, you also have to be healthy. So that's where you got to take care of. You have to kind of think of lifestyle is what, when, and how much we eat, sleep, and move on a daily basis. And lifestyle, just like brushing your teeth, is something that you do every day. Uh, If you think of these nine different things, uh, eat, sleep, and move, what, when, and where, uh, how much on a daily basis, um, then you are almost halfway in achieving what you want to do. Beautiful pieces of advice. (laughs) Sachin, Give me the URL for your new app one more time so everyone listening can download that. Yeah, so this is, uh, in the people have to go to mycircadianclock.org. If they search for My Circadian Clock, it will take them to the website and they can do the informed consent because it's a research study and then they'll get the activation code and the link on their email and then they'll start from there. Uh, the app is available in both uh, App Store and uh, Google for Android devices and tens of thousands of people from all over the world are using the app and we also have a support team to answer questions. 
Uh, beautiful. Is there anywhere else people can go to find out more about your research? Do you have a, a website or any page that they could go to if they want to read more about circadian geekiness? Yeah, so actually the same website, mycircadianclock.org, has a blog post. We try to put uh, blogs. And when they download the app and start using it, every day there is a uh, there's some health tips that relates to circadian rhythm or so that goes through it. Then I have my own Twitter handle, Sachin Panda, and I try to put everything new about circadian rhythm. And also once in a while, I kind of post something, what I say, milestones in circadian rhythm research or health research. Uh, it's not restricted to circadian rhythm because, as I said, I truly believe lifestyle is what, when, and how much we eat, sleep, and move. So that will be about physical fitness, sleep, nutrition quality, quantity, etc. So I have a few thousand followers, so <laughs> I also take questions once in a while. All right. Well, you'll probably get a few, you'll get a few thousand more here. <laughs> there's, a, there's a surprising number of researchers, uh, medical professionals, and you know, pro athletes and people like that who listen to the show. So I, I hope that everyone listening to this, whether you're in one of those fields or not, this is really important stuff that's been missing from the world of you know, chronic cardio and you know, low-fat diets for long periods of time, all the stuff that made me weigh 300 pounds. So I, I am a huge fan of, of your research and, and just my personal thanks for, for both doing the research but then being willing to talk about it and say, well, what if you tried it? Because we think it might work. And I, that, that just takes academic balls. So you've got those, Sachin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for being on Bulletproof Radio. Totally appreciate your work. Thank you, Dave. I'm glad to be here. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.